Next Wave Global Trade from EY. Hello and welcome to the podcast series from EY Global Services. I'm Justine Green and with global trade experiencing such uncertain times, we continue to look at how organisations can respond to survive and grow. Our topic this time is the increase in industrial policy and its impact on trade. Joining us from Washington, D.C., are Doug Bell, Global Trade Policy Leader at EY. Hello, Doug. Hi, Justine. Great to be here. And Courtney Rickett-McCaffrey, EY Geostrategic Business Group Insights Leader. Hello, Courtney. Hi, Justine. Thanks for having me. Doug, tell us a bit about your background, which I understand includes time spent working with the U.S. government. Sure, Justine. So before joining uh, EY as its uh, Global Trade Policy Leader, I had a long uh, career in the U.S. government in a variety of uh, senior-level economic and trade policy positions, so ranging across a couple of different organizations. So the U.S. Trade Representative's Office, I was also at the White House from 2009 to 2011, and I concluded my career at the U.S. Treasury Department. And Courtney, what does your role involve? So, Justine, I'm the insights leader for the EY Geostrategic Business Group, which means that basically I, I analyze the intersection between geopolitics, corporate performance, and political risk management. So my background is primarily in political risk consulting, macro trends analysis, and strategic foresight. Okay, well, let's get into our topic for this podcast. Doug, why is government intervention in global trade on the up right now? Well, you know, Justine, that's a great question. I think there's a number of factors. Uh, It's really been a combination of. I think I would start off by uh, highlighting that there's really been just a broad-based decline in political support for globalization as it's been practiced over the last uh, decades. Uh, You also see the rise of China and the challenge its uh, heavily state-directed economy has posed in both economic and national security terms. And of course, we've seen the shock of COVID-19 pandemic and the perception by political leaders that they really have lacked sufficient control of their economies to really address what they consider to be you know, important domestic constituency needs. But lastly, I would just comment that you know, we're also in a politically, in, in terms of national security, a period where the relationship between the major powers, so the US, China, and the EU, and others, are really in flux. Uh, and frankly, those relationships have become more competitive. So that's really led to an increased role for the state to sort of address the big structural challenges, the competitive challenges that I think government leaders feel they're facing right now. Courtney, give us some examples of how governments are getting more involved. Sure, Justine. So, I mean, the first thing I want to point out in terms of what governments are doing is that they're really focusing their involvement in two key areas, uh, both of which are really seen to be crucial to compete in the in the 21st century economy. So the first is digital technology. So that's things like you know AI, semiconductors, 5G wireless networks, basically all of the, the technologies that really make modern life work. So one prominent example is semiconductors, which have really grabbed the attention of governments all over the world this year. So you know this is no surprise given the, the global shortage that we've seen and the realization that the supply chain is extremely concentrated for these products. So now governments are crafting a variety of incentives and investments to try to get companies to produce semiconductors domestically. So we're seeing these policies in the works in the US, in Europe, uh, in China, you know, just to name some of the, the biggest players in this area. And then the second key area where we're seeing governments really uh, get involved in, in their economies is technologies that enable climate change mitigation and adaptation. 
So this is a huge focus of governments right now, particularly in the lead up to the the COP26 climate summit later this year. So we'll see more government involvement in promoting the domestic production of solar panels, wind turbines, energy efficiency technologies, and and things like that. So one really interesting example that, that we've been following closely Um, of a sector where governments are getting involved in industrial policies is in electric vehicle or EV batteries and the mineral supply chains associated with them. So we've seen Indonesia ban the export of raw nickel, which is a key component in EV batteries. Um, And they've also loosened some restrictions on foreign investment to try to foster its domestic battery and EV industries. We've also seen the EU approve uh, $3.5 billion in public funds to support EV battery manufacturing there. And, you know, last but not least is U.S. President Biden's executive order on supply chains and the recent report uh, with associated industrial policy recommendations, both of which include policies around mineral inputs and EV batteries. But there's a lot to cover on, on that aspect of U.S. industrial policy. So I'll leave it there for now. Let's get both your thoughts on the impact of increasing industrial policy on supply chains. What are the key issues here? Doug? The challenges uh, in many cases are sector specific. So there are clearly areas where, as Courtney's noted, that are of a particular focus. But that doesn't mean other sectors aren't going to be uh, impacted. And really there, there's sort of these more indirect impacts. And I think that's going to become very apparent. The impacts also come with, I think, both challenges and opportunities. So, you know, clearly there's industrial policies that are founded on what I would call incentives, so whether it's tax credits, subsidies, obviously for firms that creates opportunities to you know, take advantage of. But then they're also accompanied by coercive measures, so trade and investment restrictions, so the example that was used around Indonesia, those obviously create challenges as well. So I think there's going to be sort of the challenges that companies face really between sort of cost and efficiency, which has really driven globalization and supply chain thinking and you know, lean supply chains, versus sort of the emerging industrial policies, supply chain policies that are really designed to promote resiliency, diversification, and you know, frankly have, a, in many instances, sort of a domestic insourcing agenda. Courtney, your thoughts? Sure. Well, I think Doug was, was just touching on, on a lot of the same things that, that I would mention, but, but probably the most obvious way in which these you know, trade and investment protections affect companies is through their supply chains. So greater trade and FDI barriers you know, increase the cost of cross-border operations for companies. So this can tend to discourage the fragmented and, and geographically dispersed supply chains that have been so prevalent in recent decades. Another important impact is on companies' investments, particularly mergers and acquisitions. So companies really need to factor in greater scrutiny of FDI when when they're considering cross-border mergers and acquisitions, and then exercise higher due diligence when, when considering those transactions and figuring out if they're viable or not. And then the final impact is one that I think is often overlooked, which is reputational risks. So the rise in industrial policies is likely to renationalize the global economy, at least to some extent. So this will lead to the creation of more national champions. Now, those companies are likely to face increasing pressure to support their home governments, domestic and foreign policies, and to uphold the values of their respective governments and societies in their foreign operations. So this has a tendency to elevate reputational and compliance risks for companies in both their home markets and in foreign markets. All right, well, coming next, we'll look at a new executive order from the White House for the US supply chain. 
Doug, what is the US government trying to do with its executive order called America's Supply Chains? First and foremost is to secure supply chain resilient in the sectors deemed strategic. So this is either for national or economic security or for public health. The subtext of that, of course, is that really means trying to diversify away from countries where the U.S. feels that it is overly dependent. It really is also designed to set the stage for investments of critical infrastructure and innovation. And then it's also designed to use the power of public procurement to really change incentives and encourage the resiliency I mentioned earlier. But it explicitly is designed to address climate change and uh, what are called equity concerns, so around uh, labor, and both of which are viewed as critical to the long-term health of the U.S. and, I would say, Western economies by the Biden administration. Courtney, can you take us through its key points? Sure. Happy to, Justine. Um, So the full report is 250 pages long, so I'll try try to be brief. Um, In terms of the key points, so basically there were, there were two main parts to the executive order that Biden issued in February. So an annual review of key sectors and industrial bases, such as energy, agriculture, and transportation, and then a 100-day review of supply chains for four critical products, semiconductors, critical minerals, pharmaceuticals, and active pharmaceutical ingredients, or APIs, and large-capacity batteries, such as those used in EVs. So I'm going to focus just on this 100-day review because that's the big report that just came out in early June uh, that Doug was just talking about. So the report lays out a variety of policy priorities. One of the most important ones is that it lays out how to leverage government procurement and investment in critical industries to build more resilient supply chains for these products. Uh, The report also directs the Departments of Energy and the Interior to develop a domestic battery supply chain, which is key because the demand for EV batteries and other high-capacity batteries is expected to skyrocket in the coming years with all the focus on climate change policies and, and mitigation efforts. The review also says the Department of Commerce should facilitate the information flow between semiconductor producers and suppliers and to help fund innovation in semiconductors. And then finally, it proposes creating new cabinet-level supply chain and trade task forces. Doug, how realistic do you think this review is from the White House? Well, I think, for the most part, the analysis and the assessment of the challenge uh, that the the report goes through is pretty solid, uh, particularly if you're assuming it's important for the U.S. to have more controls over its uh, critical supply chains. But, you know, the recommendations are clearly aspirational and I would say characterizes a bit of a wish list. Some of them require only executive branch actions, and those will be much easier for the president to implement. But others will require congressional actions, uh, either through legislation that gives the executive branch authority or you know, provides funding. So those will be a much heavier lift. But I, I think what's really going to be important here is how well they're received by the business community. You know, I think if the business community feels that the recommendations make economic sense and markets and companies see the value of a more resilient supply chain, then I think these proposed changes become much more realistic and are much more likely to change behavior. Uh, if there's a gap, then it's going to be a bit more of a muddle between you know, what the government is trying to incentivize and you know, maybe even push uh, you know, versus where companies are willing to go. What do you both think will be the effect of this executive order on trade, not only inside the U.S., but also globally? Doug? Well, I, I think there's no question it's going to have a global impact. 
I think, you know, let's look just at semiconductors. You know, if we do see a restructuring of that industry supply chain, that'll have extensive impacts across not only semiconductors, but across many different sectors that use those products. You know, many different companies will be having to sort of make adjustments to, you know, their logistical and procurement function. But, you know, there's also the whole area of like rules of origin, uh, tax structure, potential changes, where do you locate IP, transfer pricing, and so on. And those are issues that every company that uses semiconductors will have to grapple with. And you also kind of layer in sort of competitive responses by China and the EU. It could really have a definite impact globally on trade and movement of goods and services cross borders. And Courtney? I think that these government actions coming out of this uh, executive order in the U.S. really have the potential to, to help to reshape global trade by making it more acceptable to use industrial policy. So, you know, basically, if the U.S. is pursuing industrial policy so explicitly, then what's to stop other countries, you know, including China, from doing the same? And why wouldn't they do so? I mean, it could become hard to compete in the global market if your companies and strategic sectors aren't receiving some government support to put them on par with what American companies are receiving. So, you know, this could even affect norms around industrial policy at the World Trade Organization, which could end up having an overall dampening effect on global trade growth in the future. I think, you know, the best case scenario is the U.S. becomes a global leader in some of these critical products, similar to how U.S. government investments enable the development of the Internet and GPS and other key technologies that, that have come to dominate life in recent decades. But whether this best case scenario is achieved really depends on how current industrial policies are designed. And, you know, as Doug mentioned, whether companies buy into what they're trying to achieve and can actually gain commercial value from them. Okay, well, to round off next, let's see how organisations can respond to more government involvement in trade. Next Wave Global Trade. Uh, Doug, what should businesses be thinking about now to react to increasing industrial policy? Well, I think there's a couple of things. I think first, um, companies really need to take a whole of company approach. Certainly governments are, uh, and I think companies need to as well. So that means this isn't just an operational issue. There's, I think hopefully as this conversation is highlighted, there are really issues of strategy, political risk, tax, finance, HR, just to name a few, that really will be need to be at the table to help make good decisions. You know, both the EU and the U.S. have formal uh, procedures. I can certainly speak with some authority on the U.S. side. Everything I hear from you know administration officials is they want, they recognize, they need input from the private sector. So companies should not be shy about doing that, whether either directly or through their in, uh, industry associations, but finding a way to help shape the direction of these policies. I would also just highlight the environmental, social, and governance, ESG concerns, uh, and how those are really affecting. Because the boundaries between these other issues, ESG, for example, and quote-unquote, you know, industrial policy, there really isn't one. And so it really will be important for, you know, companies to really just take that very broad, holistic approach and and factor these issues into their decision-making. Courtney, are supply chains agile enough to cope, or do they need to be more resilient? It's a great question, Justine, and, and actually sort of a difficult one to answer because it really depends on the company. So, you know, we've seen some companies already uh, develop fairly agile and resilient supply chains in part because they, they began reorganizing them in response to previous shocks and policy shifts. 
Um, but we find in our, our work with clients that a lot of companies actually have a lot more they could do to improve agility and resilience in their supply chains. So, you know, in fact, we actually just released a survey of a thousand global executives in which we asked them how trade protectionism and industrial policies will affect their company's supply chain. And the key finding is, is that these political risks are creating much more complex supply chains. So in the next year, 46% more companies expect to diversify their supplier base compared to those who expect to consolidate suppliers. About one third of executives say their company's supply chains will become longer. And again, about a third expect greater use of nearshoring or onshoring. So my takeaway from all of these these plan strategy shifts is as industrial policies continue to proliferate in capitals around the world, it seems global executives realize they need to do more to improve supply chain resiliency. Finally, looking ahead, what are you both hearing from the policymakers about the degree and complexity of government intervention in trade? Doug? I think it's clear to say that trade clearly has become a, a tool to address the challenges that we've started these discussions with. But it's also important to note uh, that it's just not a U.S. phenomenon. We've been discussing the U.S. executive order, but in the EU, you have its open strategic autonomy framework, and you know China has articulated you know its dual circulation policy. So what I hear policymakers clearly articulating that trade has an important role to play in supporting these broader industrial policies. And that the severity and the long-term nature of these challenges means that this will be the case for certainly a while to come. Uh, and I'd also point out that you know this the report we've just been describing is really just limited to four sectors. There's an accompanying report that'll come out in February 2022, which in the case of the U.S. looks at its industrial base, uh, and therefore will have a much broader coverage and sector implications. So the outcome is really going to be a balance between the policy goals that governments are aspiring to and the economic imperatives that companies will face. Courtney, any insight on this from you? Yeah, I mean, I I certainly agree with Doug that trade has become a sharper tool in many policymakers' toolboxes. Um, And I want to pick up on what Doug was saying about sort of the, the intention and the outcome because there's recognition among policymakers as well that the, the outcome of trade policy shifts doesn't always match their intended goals and objectives. You know, I think the, the most prominent example of this um, is that a lot of the tariffs that the previous U.S. administration imposed uh, have been paid primarily by U.S. companies and consumers. And the U.S. trade deficit with China is still very large. So there's a question of, of how to design trade policies better to actually um, actually achieve the objectives that they're set out to achieve. So, you know, given the recognition of these complexities, I expect future trade policies to be more targeted, so less of a machete approach, more of a scalpel. This shift will be good and bad for companies, I think. Good because fewer companies will likely be affected by any any new tariffs, but those that are affected are likely to feel an even greater pinch in terms of higher prices or reduced supplier options. Okay, well, it's been a really enlightening conversation. Thank you both very much for sharing your knowledge on this subject. Doug, thank you. Yes, and Justine, thank you. And Courtney, thank you. Thank you, Justine. Do join us next time when we'll continue to discuss global trade with our expert guests. Also, you can subscribe to this series so you won't miss an episode. From me, Justine Green, Doug Bell and Courtney Rickett-McCaffrey, it's thanks for listening and goodbye. Next Wave Global Trade, back soon.